We were made for wholeness that can only be found in union with our Creator. But since the beginning, we have embarked on an endless quest to satiate our desires with a never-ending array of disordered loves. We have attached ourselves to pleasure and relationships and work, but they do not satisfy. What if the truth is that no created thing will ever fulfill us like the creator of all things can? No created thing can bear the weight of our deepest hopes or the weight of our soul's longings. Only one can do that. All the rest is counterfeit. Well, um, counterfeit. This is week three. We have one more week of this series. And what a deep dive it has been, as usual. So two weeks ago, I started this series off talking about that this idea of a counterfeit, of an idol, might be a little bit more of a Christianese word to put on that, right? An idol is something that we're trying to use to mend the ache of separation from our Creator. The union that we were made for with love itself, that there's been separation there. And we're trying to get back to that, but we settle for these lesser loves, for these, as Augustine said, the essence of sin is disordered loves. Things that are good, things that we probably should love, but when we're depending on them for the worth that only can come from the Creator, then they have become an idol, a counterfeit. Last week, Pastor Melody talked about how even the good things, community, church, religion itself, the Bible itself, family, how any of those things outside of the authentic presence of a living and personal God can become counterfeit. That when we have put all of our worth and identity into those things and those things fail like they will, or at least our perception of those things, then it is devastating because we put our worth and identity into something besides a present and personal God. And she spoke of how instead of idols, we could make those good things into altars, places where we engage the presence of the one true God. So today we're going to be talking about the golden calf. The golden calf. We talked about the Ten Commandments, we talked about the burning bush, and now the episode of the golden calf. So many of you know that I enjoy um, interior design. Is that weird? Is that weird to say? I do enjoy that. Some of you enjoy that with me. Um, and I'm very aesthetically oriented. So uh, right now, as you heard, the house is kind of a disaster. It's kind of ripped apart right now. But it'll, it'll, it'll get back to normal at some point. But one thing I really like to do with um, when designing a space is to have personal things, personal things in that space, right? 
uh, like if everything is, is store-bought in my house, then there's no stories there except for one day we went to Home Goods and bought that. And that's fine. That's cool. Um, but I'm talking about things that really are part of the design that represent a story, a memory, right? Something to remind you of that trip or that person or whatever. So we have a few um, pictures, I think. So that shelf is a four by four from our old fence at our old house. See, isn't that neat? Like that there's a piece of our old house that we love so much, we lived there for 10 years, and now we have a little piece of it right here in our new house, right? Um, and then this is uh, the next one. That's actually uh, a piece of curtain from our old house. So there's all kinds of things like that. I, I couldn't take any more pictures because a lot of things are just all over the place right now in my house. But there's some driftwood from a cabin we went to with a creek in, with our family, and we took that. And we remember that trip when we see that driftwood on the wall, right? So I could go on and on. We have a lot of things in our house like that that have stories and memories to them. And we like that, right? We all like mementos. We all like that. But, but why is that? I think it's because tokens of remembrance, they make us feel connected to something we want to remember, right? Some, some place, some person, some presence, some experience that we want to stay in touch with. And they give us something tangible, something tangible, less abstract, something we can see and feel and be with. And that's well and good, right? That's, that's great. But sometimes, a lot of times, people tend to do that with God. But when we exchange the tangible tokens about God for God himself, that's when we fall into a counterfeit place. When we start to exchange the tokens, the things, the knowledge about God for the authentic presence of God himself, then we're getting into a counterfeit territory. And most people read about idols in the Bible and they assume that the story is about not making an idol into a God, right? Hey, don't make this idol into a God. But what if these stories are about something more? What if these stories are also about not making God into an idol? Now, if that sounds weird or intriguing or confusing or provocative, great. That's what we do around here. We ask the questions that might make you squirm on occasion. But that's good because I have your attention, right? So... God into an idol. That's weird. Let's unpack that over the next few minutes. I promise it will click into focus. So, like I said, we're going to talk about this episode of the Golden Calf in this epic Exodus narrative of the Hebrews coming out of slavery in Egypt and coming through the desert to their eventual homeland. But as usual, I'd like to go deeper with this. I'd like to turn this gym a few times and we might just uncover something a little bit surprising something that i had not seen before so maybe some of you have not seen it before in this story either so the israelites led by moses and aaron have come out of slavery in egypt and they have come just like god said they would 
to Mount Horeb. And they are camped out there. There's a lot of them. Some people say like a million. Some people say this wasn't a million. It was 500,000. Okay, there was a lot of them. Can we agree on that? So a lot of them have come out and are camped at the base of the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Now Moses has gone up the mountain to commune with God and to hear, to start to get this divine download, this conversation with God about all of these rules for living, including the Ten Commandments. So that's where Moses, he's up the mountain. Well, here's what's going on down on the plain. It's not going well. Let's pick up on Exodus chapter 32. I'm reading out of the ESV. Okay, here it is. Um, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Pause. Well, that's interesting. Do you remember what God said at the burning bush to Moses? But I will go with you. The authentic presence was promised. But here we are, and they're saying, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, reading on, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Like a baby cow, not like a lower portion of a leg. Although, no, I think we're pretty sure it was a baby cow. A calf. Um, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And then... They rose up to play. And we're not talking about a friendly round of cornhole. We're talking about a wild party. Okay. So why are these people itching to make an idol? What, what is that? Why is that such a thing, especially in the Old Testament? Right? Why is that so tempting to these ancient people? Well, we have to remember something, that the idea of one all-powerful, yet unseen, yet personally present God is still a radical idea to these ancient minds. That's still a very unheard of thing, even to these people who are aware of their legacy, though they've been enslaved in Egypt for a long time. They're aware of their history. They're aware of this Yahweh. But the idea that he's unseen yet personally present, let's be honest, that's still hard for us, isn't it? That's still hard for us. But maybe even more than that is a very human tendency that we still come up against today. It's a desire to possess for proof, to possess to have something for proof. That is to hold on to something tangible so that we know 
that we have it. And that is hard to do with one all-powerful, unseen, personally present God. Like, what do I hold on to? What can I grasp here? And if we're honest, we've all wondered where God is at some point. We've all had those moments, seasons, late nights. Or if you haven't, you will. I promise you that. That place where no amount of past miracles or provision, none of it's proof enough in those moments. Because we need something to grasp. We long for something to cling to, to hold on for proof, a memento, keeping us close to what we fear that we've lost. And for the Israelites, they were missing something. They were missing their leader. They say that Moses might have been gone up the mountain for a month, maybe six weeks. They may have been gone. And the smoky, fiery pillar of God's presence that had been guiding them, it went up the mountain too. So they wanted an idol, sure, but deeper than that, they wanted something to see and touch and comprehend fully. And a little deeper than that, they wanted not just some random pagan god to worship. You with me? Because this is important. They didn't just want some random pagan god to worship. They wanted to touch and see their god. Bear with me as I explain this, okay? Back up in verse 1, the people tell, tell Aaron to make them gods, right? Our translations, most of them say, make us gods, plural, little g, plural, gods, who will go before them. But now, in Hebrew, that word gods is Elohim. And that might sound familiar, Elohim. Now, that word means God. Technically, it means gods, because it's a plural masculine noun, gods, Elohim, like cherubim and seraphim and Elohim. It means gods. However, that word, as you may know, is used in the singular sense sometimes. And I'm no scholar, but I did read up, and we don't need to explain why it's used in the singular, but it is. And it's also used as a name for God, capital G. God, Elohim. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Elohim, though it means little g God's plural, is used as the name of God, of Yahweh. Now, this is weird for us English speakers because for us, we have the word God. That's what we have. Like, he doesn't have a name, name. It's just God. To them, Elohim was like a universal God. And Yahweh was the same guy, but that was his proper name. So that's like for us if we had God and uh, Rob. I don't know uh, if God had a name, right? A personal, a personal proper name. That's what they had in Yahweh. And Elohim just kind of meant God. Okay. Still with me? Uncross your eyes. We're moving forward. I'm just kidding. So... <laughs> <clears throat> they're asking for God, for Elohim. That's who they're asking for when they say build us an idol. Now, I remember being taught growing up in my faith tradition that these horrible heathens, these horrible, terrible Israelites 
were so wanted to love and worship some pagan deity, right? It was just so tempting. They couldn't help cheating on God, so to speak, with some other God. And we're pretty comfortable with that interpretation, right? That surface level. Yeah, 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 that's what it was. Ancient people, they just really had to worship something. Uh, where am I going to put my worship? Build an idol. I don't care who it is, a pagan god, whatever. I just have to bow to it. Or, and so we're comfortable with that idea because it's hard to relate to for us. We're not super tempted to go and worship Ra or Dagon or whomever, whatever deity you want to pick out of the ancient pantheon. It's not a big challenge for most of us. Or if it is, please talk to me after the gathering. I'd like to talk to you about that. <laughs> but that's a comfortable analysis, right? These guys, these Israelites, gosh, look at them. They're so, they trip up on these idol worship all the time. What, it, what is that? But we have to go deeper than that. We have to go underneath that. We have to find ourselves in this story because we are there. Look back at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. When he saw the golden calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow, we, or, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. See that all caps, Lord? You know when they use that, Lord? That's Yahweh. That's not Elohim. Aaron is saying, we're going to have a feast to our one God, Yahweh. He's being specific. The personal proper name of Israel's God is who he's saying we're going to be worshiping as we bow down and feast in front of this golden calf. I'll be honest with you, as usual, I did not see this before the past couple of weeks. They were trying to craft their God in a tangible way. They made a representation of Yahweh. They needed something to cling to. Moses was missing. The visible cloud of God's presence was removed. So they needed to trust in a God of their own making. God, in some twisted way, had become their idol. And to be crystal clear, here's what I mean by God becoming an idol. Okay, here, here, here we go. What I mean is they were worshiping their version of God, their version of Yahweh. Through their fears and their passions, they worshiped a version of Yahweh that they had created. I think this is on the screen. Their construct of God had literally become their idol. And I use literally there, literally. Their construct of God, their idea of God had literally become their idol. But thank God, we don't ever do that these days. Or have we? Or do we? Do we accidentally worship the God of our own making, our mental construct of God, a construct built on, out of subcultural narratives and our limited and biased interpretations of Scripture? 
We don't do that, do we? Do we? We have to understand something, church. The more that we unconsciously cling to our own small mental construct of God, the bigger our idol of that God becomes. We build these golden calf versions of God because we can see them. We can contain it, and we can take it with us. Maybe there's a reason that God told the Israelites not to make any graven images, even images of him. No graven images, guys. That's what he said. Because if they did, they're tempted to reduce God down into something that can be easily quantified and understood. This is how author Brian Zahn puts it in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. He says, part of the genius of the ancient Hebrew religion was its unique prohibition against graven images. The problem with idols, listen, the problem with idols is that they put too fine a point on what God is like. The second of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol, prevented Israel from claiming too much precision about their knowledge of God. The image of God would not be carved in stone or cast in bronze. Refusing to make an image of God is a marvelous concession to humility. Refusing to make an image of God is a marvelous concession to humility. And that's exactly what the temptation is for us, isn't it? To claim too much precision about our knowledge of God. Grasping in our hubris to define and categorize, box in, limit, and understand all of him. But that can so easily turn into a counterfeit God, especially when we have to cling to that construct we built of God. And the insidious thing about this type of idolatry, this counterfeit, is that we think we're looking at the real thing. But we're bowing to a golden calf that we have created, that we have owned a narrative about, and we've called it Yahweh. Let's see what Moses did about this golden calf issue. Skipping ahead a bit to verse 19. Verse 19, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20, he took, this, <laughs> this is amazing, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So there. This reminds me of the time one of my uncles caught my cousin with cigarettes in his room. And what did he do? Made him smoke all of the cigarettes. The whole pack. You know, drinking the ashes of the God we have created is unpleasant. But although it's not fun, it leads, it can lead to freedom. I believe and I see in here and out there 
Church, there's a quiet awakening going on. There's, there's a reformation going on where people find themselves in a place of deconstructing their faith, whether they'd like to or not. It just starts happening. I've been there. I'm looking out there, and I know a lot of you have been there. And if you haven't, you may be at some point in the future where we start to step back and look at this bucket, this box that we've had God in for the first time. We start to see it. Now, when some people go through this, they leave the faith because they can't reconcile their construct of God with science or history or what have you. Now, some people choose denial when they get a glimpse of the God of their own image that they've made and they get real angry and real defensive. If anything is said that seems to threaten that carefully crafted golden calf that they're clinging to. But still others choose to go through, to go through the pain and disillusionment of allowing their golden calf to be burned up and ground down and tossed back. They, sm they smoke the whole pack, so to speak. And that deconstruction, that unraveling, it is unnerving. I've been through it. And it's painful. But the disillusionment that comes from seeing our cultural and mental constructs of God being burned up, it's worth it. It's worth it. As I've said before, it's been a while, but I've said this before, disillusionment about God Disillusionment about God is actually a merciful gift from God. Disillusionment about God is actually a merciful gift from God because it allows us to shed our illusions that we've been clinging to about who he is. It's called disillusionment, the dropping of illusions. And in place of the golden calf, we hear what Moses heard at the burning bush. But I will go with you. But I will go with you. Yahweh Emmanuel, the with us God who has given us the gift of authentic presence. Not a package to cling to, fearfully defend. But the gift of a dynamic, moving growing, teaching, personal presence. Like the Israelites, I think we tend to count on our mentally constructed God when we don't feel the authentic presence. When it's easier to bow to the idol of God, the God of our own understanding, than it is to be still and find the authentic presence. Like the Israelites, I think we do this when we're tired of waiting for the redemption to show up. When we're tired of waiting to get to the promised land we feel like was promised. When the leaders that we accidentally grew attached to and dependent on appear to have let us down or disappeared or changed or messed up. Like the Israelites, we're still tempted to bow to idols of all kinds, including our limited ideas of God. But unlike, 
But unlike them, we don't have to wonder and grasp at what God is like. Not that we can ever comprehend fully, because that would just be another counterfeit. But we don't need an idol, my friends, because we have an icon of God. We have the icon of God. Now, that word icon, icons are everywhere, right? Icons are everywhere. They're all around us. We engage them every day, right? Look, look at all these icons. We all look at them and engage these icons every day. They're everywhere. Did you know that icons like these that are uh, for, you know, to represent an application, these have influenced the way that businesses have done their logos and signage. Have you noticed that? Signs used to be bigger. They used to be more colorful, more words, more things going on. Now, you drive by a restaurant, they just have sort of an icon on the wall. An icon is more than a symbol, right? They're trying to pull in the aesthetic the look, the feel, the essence of that brand or that application down into one small icon. So an icon captures the sort of the whole essence of the application. And then we tap on the icon to open up the whole application. Some of you are two steps ahead, aren't you? Continuing on with Brian Zahn's quote, on the screen. And yet, to, yet Christians do something different. For we do talk about the image of God being definitively revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. Is that right, church? Or is that right? Definitively revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. This is why the church in the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 ruled in favor of icons arguing that since Jesus bears God's perfect image, the Greek word is icon, icons are therefore an acceptable part of Christian worship. The church fathers recognized that in Christ, God had given humanity not an idol, but an icon of the divine nature. The confession of the Second Council of Nicaea was more than a ruling in support of the sacred art of Christian iconography. It was an acknowledgment that in the life of Jesus Christ, we find a definitive answer to the question of what God is like. Is that an amen or is that an amen? In the life of Jesus Christ, we find a definitive answer to the question of what God is like. God is like Jesus. Jesus is not an idol. Jesus is not just one of many avatars of God. Jesus is the perfect icon of the invisible God. In him, the essence, look and feel and sound of God is revealed. John makes quite an effort to make this clear if we're looking, if we have ears to hear. Let's put these up. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
next. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Next. I and the Father are one. Keep going. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Keep going. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You see, church, now we know to start with Jesus. We don't need an idol. We have the icon of the Father in Jesus. He is the starting point of it all. So to read the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, we read them through the lens of Jesus. God revealed through the person of Jesus. To build our ideas about God and some sort of foundation of understanding about God, that foundation is Jesus. To acknowledge Jesus as the perfect icon of the Father, that is the starting point of our faith. We don't need to be restricted and constrained and enslaved to the idol of our own boxed-in construct of the Father. We go to Jesus. If our knowledge of God starts anywhere or is built on anything other than Jesus Christ, then we are on our way to constructing that golden calf. An attempt to contain God in something we can see and control and know everything about is a place that is far from humility, a place that is not starting at the starting point of Jesus Christ. Perhaps this is the lesson of the golden calf. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for the way that it still speaks to us through these stories, through these histories, these accounts. Spirit, we ask that you would continue to speak, that if we're encouraged, that we'll take that to heart, that we'll own that. If we are challenged, that we'll own that too, that we'll go to you with that challenge, that we'll observe it, ask you to speak through it. 
God, forgive us where we have kept you small. Forgive us where we have kept you in a box and cleaned tightly to it. Forgive us for that idolatry. God, give us the freedom to set you free. The freedom to let you be who you are, to not cling to a set of ideas about you, but to know you, to know you through living with you, to Christ's life in us being worked out because you are Yahweh and you are Emmanuel. You are God with us, with us. So God, let us hold it loosely and not cling out of fear or anger or defense, but to begin to experience who you really are, real, active, moving, living, breathing, speaking, presence in the spirit of Jesus in us.